Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you're visiting with us, my name's Jeff. see a lot of familiar faces, though. Uh, my friend, and I could say one of my mentors, Jeff Griffin, is here, and he rolls his eyes, but it's true. Um, I worked with Jeff, I don't know, five or six years. Jeff was senior pastor at a church. I was a campus pastor. Uh, and I can, I, can, I can give you all the accolades of Jeff. He's, I mean, you are going to be blessed by him. But I, I do think, I think about Jeff and his impact in my life. Um, and there's lots of connections, actually. Jeff's senior pastor growing up uh, is Andy Olson's dad. <laughs> and he was in youth group with Andy Olson, so that's pretty cool. But here's what I want to say about Jeff. I think I've told you this before, but just in case you forgot. Uh, I think, and I try to do this with our staff team too, and I think some of it I learned from Jeff, but when you're young in ministry, uh, there's so many challenges, and I don't know, if you're arrogant and think you belong, God usually finds a way to humble you, (laughs) but you're usually often asking the question, what am I doing here? I mean, being a pastor is such a weird thing. And you need somebody, I mean, I talk about this often, you need somebody who you esteem who esteems you, right? Uh, obviously, Jesus is the best person for that. But, but you need people in your life who see more in you than you can see in yourself. And I can say Jeff has always been that for me. Um, and so, um, grateful for Jeff. You benefit from his ministry and you don't even know it. But if Uh, I'm going to pray, and then if you would uh, just welcome Jeff with a round of applause when he comes up. Let's bow our heads. Uh, Jesus, we love your church. It is a gift to be a part of your church, and we get a little taste of how you're moving in other places this morning. Um, I do pray your blessing over Jeff, um, and I, I just pray that our hearts are open. And Spirit of God, that we are ready to receive the good news you have for us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Would you welcome Jeff? Thank you, Mr. Kenneth. I'll tell you, uh, this guy's an incredible blessing in my life. You may get weary of pastors praising each other here, but the the truth, did I turn on my mic? Okay, good. The truth is, I remember, you think Jeff's young now, I remember him when he was a punk kid, you know, arriving for, applying for a position at my previous church, and I remember interviewing Jeff, and right away, I I realized, he's the real deal. He has got a love for Christ that is so true, a character that reflects the very nature uh, of Jesus, and bright, way smarter I could ever hope to be, and gifted. And sure enough, Jeff has just been an incredible servant of God in my last church, a dear friend of mine. He calls me a mentor, which makes me really feel old. But truth is, he has impacted my life as much as I his. And so, so, so grateful. You know, Jeff and I were both at this church, and Interesting, around the same time, God led us both to leave that church and both take on pastorates of evangelical free churches. And so as co-free church pastors, we've also had a group that gets together occasionally, and it's been really fun to continue our friendship in that context as well. So when he said, hey, would you come and preach? I was just so delighted to do so. And so I want to say thanks. You got to know people are praying for Crossview. 
praying for all of you that your lives would soar spiritually, that the work of God in this place would be beautiful, rich, and bring him glory. And so just a real treat to be here. With that said, I I, uh, wanted to start my message by showing you a, a little doll and telling you just a short story about it. I was in need of a prop of baby Jesus. That's kind of how it all started. And uh, what happened was I went into this box of dolls down in my basement. Uh, I have two daughters, but they had grown up and were past the doll phase. And so we had kind of packed them all up in this box. And, and I started digging around. They were all too big, you know, and I was looking for a small one. And, and, I, and I realized that they were very connected to certain dolls and wouldn't want me touching them. You know, had they found out that I had used them, these daughters would be very upset with me. But I finally came across this one, and I thought, this is a homely-looking doll. I have no recollection whatsoever of my daughters ever playing with this doll. And so I said, I think it's safe to take and use. I mean, it's a throwaway is why I looked at it. The one problem with the doll is at the time, it had long hair, hair coming down to halfway down the doll's back. And obviously, baby Jesus doesn't have hair coming down his back when he's a newborn. And so I said, that's not going to work. Now, I knew I was going to have it bundled in a you know, swaddling cloth. But I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give the doll a haircut. Can you tell, huh? Isn't that a beautiful haircut? It did not work out as nicely. Kind of looks like something from a horror movie at this point. But I, I did. I just said, I don't want this hair falling out from the swaddling cloth, so I'm going to cut it. And I'm cutting, I'm cutting, going, oh, it's a good thing the head will be covered because this is just nasty. Well, as I'm cutting the doll's hair, my wife and two daughters return from their little shopping outing. And my first daughter passes by, and I'm like, are you okay with what I did? And she said, I don't care about that doll. Second daughter comes by. She's like, whatever. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get away with this. It's fine. You know what's coming, don't you? Yeah, you guys are pretty way smarter than me, that's for sure. My wife looks and screams, Jenny! My wife, is her name is Jennifer. And apparently back in 1972, Fisher Price came out with this doll series called My Friend. And this is my friend, Jenny. And this turns out to be her favorite doll. She bought Jenny and adored it. And apparently the doll had been just sitting in a box, being kept away as an heirloom. And the trouble I got into with giving Jenny a haircut, you will never know. What does the little story tell us? I was doing something as I went through that box of dolls. I was evaluating or appraising the value of these dolls. Certain dolls I knew were deeply treasured by my daughters and therefore needed to be cared for with a lot of uh, TLC. This one I inaccurately appraised the value of. I had concluded it to be worthless trash. Come to find out, my uh, appraisal was way off. My wife made it clear Jenny was the most precious doll of the bunch as far as she's concerned. Isn't that interesting, the, the whole notion of appraisal, how people can have very differing opinions when it comes to the appraisal of something like a doll. And I'm here to tell you, 
people can have very differing opinions on the appraisal of you. If I were to ask, you know, how much are you worth? i got bad news. There are people who aren't particularly impressed with you. And there are people who don't even really like you that much. And their view of you for one reason or another may be that you are worthless trash. And they can have their opinion, but as we seek to biblically diagnose the value of our own soul, their opinion doesn't count. There's only one opinion that counts, and that's the Lord's. He made us. He bought us at a price with the shed blood of Christ. We are His. And as His, He is the only one that can announce the true nature of who you are and the true nature of what you're worth. I'll I'll tell you why this is so important. Because so many of us lack the joy, the vitality, the confidence, the passion in life because we are believing the barrage of lies Satan throws at us regarding our own worth. I'll, I'll give you an example. It was on a Wednesday, not this last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before. I had a bad day, as I have a lot of bad days. We all do. I had a meeting with folks at church and this uh, team of staff had made a request of me. And I decided, you know, I'd love to meet their request. I can't. And so I said no, and they, I let them down. <laughs> and you could tell. You don't you love letting people down? I'm a people pleaser by nature. And so, you know, uh, all of them just looking at me like, man, you are a disappointment. Probably exaggerating in my own mind, but they were all shouting with their eyes, you are a disappointment to me. I walked out of that meeting just feeling very low, like, man, they all are so disappointed. Uh, no kidding, I left the restaurant, we were meeting at a restaurant, I left the restaurant, I'm walking to my car, and I pass by an ice cream shop, having just had lunch. Now, I need ice cream in the middle of the afternoon, like I need a hole in my head, all right? Uh, it's just not something I need to pursue, and but it calls to me at all times. I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I have a real battle here. It's one of the reasons, I, only probably reason I don't like Jeff, is because he's so skinny and he doesn't even try, you know, and it just drives me nuts. I apologize that you have to look at him all the time. Well, the ice cream is screaming and I'm like, no, I'm feeling, you know, this little voice saying, run. And I didn't run. I went and I ate ice cream. And Ice cream in the middle of the day, it tastes so good going down. But then a little later, you're just like, oh, why did I do that? And that's where I was at. So now I got the staff disappointed with me. Now I'm disappointed with myself. And assuming the Lord is shaking his head going, you are such an undisciplined bum. No kidding. Same with all within an hour. I get on this road and I'm driving. And apparently I made a lane change that, the person behind me did not approve of because she uh, honked her horn. You know, there's the nice little beep beep kind of honk. This was, that was not this kind. She laid on the horn and it was so long. It was embarrassing. I'm like, you're kidding me. Really? You're that upset? And then she pulls over and pulls up next to me and gave me a certain hand gesture. Uh, I'm not Uh, fluent in uh, sign language, but I'm pretty sure I know what this single finger gesture means. And I could not believe it. I mean, she's glaring at me, giving me this finger. And I'm like, wow, Wendy one finger doesn't like me very much either. And I'm at this moment feeling so low. Why? 
let down my staff, let down my Lord, let down myself, let down the lady on the street. And you can have these moments where you just feel like scum. In fact, there's a strong case you could make that you are scum, pointing to a number of factors. But here's what I got to tell you. Those factors don't matter. What we desperately need is to look into the heart of God, to look through His eyes at us and say, Father, tell me who I am and what I'm worth. In this passage, really one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, it's also been one of my favorites for a long time, but sometimes you don't preach your favorites for, at least in my case, for a long time. So I'm kind of returning to one that I just love so much, and that's Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is a unique chapter uh, of the Bible in that it contains three parables in rapid succession, just boom, 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 boom. Jesus was essentially telling three parables with nearly the same point in them, but the point being so important that he's like, did you get it? Let me try another. Did you get it? Let me try another. Did you get it? The three parables are the, the three lost things. Uh, you may recall it's a lost sheep, and then a lost coin, and then a lost son. And in each of the cases, the lost things are found. And it's a picture of salvation, getting right with the Lord. In each case, there's a celebration following the finding. You know, and it's a parallel to the celebration in heaven. In fact, the passage says, Jesus says, I tell you, the angels in heaven celebrate when one sinner gets right with God through Christ. And it's, it's a beautiful threefold parable about salvation, but it's also a brilliant threefold parable of who we are in God's eyes. In fact, if you remember the context, let me read the context. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. It says, sinners, and by the way, we are sinners. Sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus saw their disgust. And so he's like, oh boy. Says then Jesus told them this parable and the next and the third. So what's the context? The context is Jesus is celebrating the value of these despicable people by dining with them. And the religious leaders conclude Jesus doesn't understand that these people are worthless to God. And Jesus, being God himself, says, you people don't understand how God feels about broken people. And he announces these three parables as both a celebration of salvation, but a proclamation as to the enduring value of broken, sinful people. And so let's take a look at the three, shall we? And I've always asked myself, maybe you as well, is there any nuance of difference between the three parables that could be of value as we seek to understand more and more uh, the heart of God. Did he tell three parables just to put an exclamation point on it? That'd be reason enough. Or are there, again, some distinctives of the three that contribute to our understanding of who we are in God's eyes? And I think there are, and I'd like to point them out. Going to the first parable, you ready? This is the parable of the lost sheep. I'm going to read just verses 4 and 5. It says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and loses one of them. 
doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Jesus was observing something about shepherds in the ancient world. This unique capacity that ancient shepherds had at caring about the individual sheep. Jesus knew that shepherds know each of their sheep. To us, to non-shepherds, when we look at a bunch of sheep, they're all identical, aren't they? They're this big mass of white fluffy things with four legs running around. But to a shepherd who lives day and night with those sheep, the differences between them, whether they be physical characteristics, whether they be uh, personality traits, whether they be the sound of his call, Believe it or not, in the ancient world, though a shepherd might have a hundred sheep, he knew each of them by name. They would name the shepherds. Uh, This is alluded to when Jesus says in uh, uh, John 10, 3, the good shepherd calls each of his sheep by name too. And so in the ancient world, though the sheep look identical to the layman, to the professional shepherd, each one of them, was known and cared about. And when there was a flock of a hundred, and one of them got lost, to the amazement of onlookers, the shepherd would say, where's old Greybeard? He was here a moment ago, but he's not here now. I'm going to find him. And it was mind-blowing to the layman looking at a shepherd and their unique capacity to recognize an individual. You know, the thing that I connect with and relate to in this regard is I once had identical twins working for me. You ever gotten to know identical twins? And when you first meet them, you're like, there is no way on earth I will ever be able to tell these two apart. They are identical in every way. And yet with these two I worked with, after I had worked with them for a couple years, their distinctives became so obvious to me, subtle things, that I laughed at the notion of assuming that I'd never be able to tell them apart because their differences were obvious to me now. That's how it is with a shepherd and sheep. They look all the same to us, but the uniquenesses are identified and celebrated by the shepherd. How does this apply to us? Friends, uh, we are that one in a hundred. We are one in a crowd. And sometimes it's tempting to believe because there are so many people in the world and we're such a small, puny reality in contrast. Uh, I wrote down how many people there are in the world. Almost 7.9 billion. Can you imagine that? And when you look at yourself, you're like, who am I? I mean, I'm nobody, you know. Just a resident of Sycamore or DeKalb, you know. I'm, I'm nobody. And yet, though you are just a face in the crowd to the world, you are known You see the word known there under this verse. You are known by God. It's it's mind-boggling, but true. I never felt so small as when I was 12 years old. I I was in the summer. My buddy and I said, hey, what are we going to do? Summer break, let's have some fun. And we decided to go downtown into the inner city of Chicago. And we lived in Arlington Heights at the time. We rode our bikes to the train station, hopped on the train all by ourselves. I cannot believe my mom and dad let me do this. I would never let my kids do this, but we did. And we went downtown Chicago at rush hour in the morning. 
I don't know if you've ever done that before, but you get off the train. Here's a picture. You get off the train, and it is a zoo of humanity. And here we were, two little 12-year-old boys in our rumpled T-shirts and tattered jeans, surrounded by all these high-powered business people in suits. And we were caught up in this swarm of humanity. And my buddy Mike said, what do we do? I go, I don't know, just follow everybody. And we're just... And I, I got out onto the streets of the city, and it was the same, just this river of millions of people. I never felt so small. And there is a temptation when you realize how many there are and how few you are. There's a temptation to think you don't matter. But friends, this parable of the one sheep out of a hundred, the point is, and this must have some, I, th- I fear that we put our Human limitations on God. You know, we can only, we, relationally, we only have so far we can go before we're maxed out and we can say, you know, I don't have any more relational bandwidth. God doesn't have that problem. His omnipresence and his just infinity in nature yields him capable of giving you his undivided attention 24 7. Every time you wake up, God's like, I'm here for you. Let's go. Lord, you're thinking of me right now? Thinking of you. Why aren't you thinking of bigger things? Well, I'm thinking of them too. You know, and it's, 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 a, it's just, it's hard for us. Again, but we're putting our limitations on God when we reduce and assume he cannot really know us because there are so many. You remember Jesus once said in uh, Luke 12, verse 7, he said, the Lord knows how many hairs there are on your head. You know how many hairs there are on your head? God says, I know you better than you know yourself. God says, I am interested in the details, the quirky aspects of your personality that drive your spouse crazy. God says, I like them. I like how I've made you. And I delight in your personality and your gifting and your dreams and in your fears. God says, I am endlessly interested in you. And we're like, really, Lord, I bore me. And he's like, okay, you, sure enough, you bore you, but you don't bore me. God says, I love you. I know you. You may be one in a hundred, but you're precious to me as evidenced by the fact that Christ came to rescue you. So let's leave the first parable, shall we, and go to the second. The second is the parable of the lost coin. And the heart of it is found in verse eight. And I'll, I'll read that now. It says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? If I were to ask you, what's your favorite of these three parables? I can tell you now, the lost coin would lose. It'd get the uh, number three in the ranking. It's just not as wildly popular as the lost son or the lost sheep. But I've grown in my understanding of this parable and my appreciation of it, and I'd like to convey that to you. The notion of a lost coin in a house. You know, unfortunately, we, if if you had lost a coin in your house, where would you look for it? I I would go to the couch. (laughs) Whenever I lose anything, I start pulling up the couch cushions, digging around, and I find remotes that I've lost years ago and various stuff in the couch. Well, they didn't have couches like ours. And so we can't imagine our homes when we think of this home. In fact, this verse has a couple references that point to the differences. What does it say? Uh, Oops, can we go back? It says that she doesn't 
doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house? Light a lamp, sweep the house. When you talk about looking for something, is that what you say? I need to find the TV remote. I'm going to light a lamp and sweep the house. No, no. This points to the fact that homes were very different then. And I'll tell you just a bit about the differences. Now we can go to the picture. This is a picture of a pounded earth floor, okay? Pounded earth floor. Uh, Ordinary people in the first century had floors that were just pounded earth. Now, you may be aware that archaeologists have discovered some mosaic tile floors of people in the first century Israel. Those were the wildly rich and the very few ordinary folks. And this woman, who's only got 10 coins to her name, she's an ordinary person. She would have a pounded earth floor. And in a pounded earth floor, as you can imagine, the dirt just is created with every step and the dust and debris collects in the corners between the walls and the floor. It's just what you become used to. You know, you live with it. It would drive us crazy. didn't bother them. This was normal. And occasionally they would sweep and try to get all that loose dirt and debris out of the house. Well, apparently searching for the coin, it's fallen on the floor. It's been kicked to some corner. It is buried in a bunch of disgusting dirt and debris. The reason that she needs a lamp, this is important. This picture is taken right by a doorway where there's a lot of light. But these homes didn't have windows, or if they did have a window, they were very small. And so the natural light was very limited, no electricity. As you see, like the dark corner beyond that little uh, bench there. That's what the, most of the house looked like. It was pitch dark. Maybe that's why people didn't mind all the dirt on the floors. They couldn't see it. Well, in the case of this lost coin, the lamp is lit, the broom is grabbed, and this woman is getting down and dirty, digging through the junk, trying to find the treasure in the trash. Here, here's the point I'd like to make. Though our circumstances may make us feel like trash, we are actually treasured by God. The circumstances of the coin are rather disgusting. I mean, it's been kicked around. It is in disgusting dirt and debris. And if you were to evaluate the value of that coin based on its environment, its circumstances, you'd say it's trash. Everything on the floor is trash. But everything on the floor isn't trash in this case. And it's evidenced by the fact that this woman gets down and dirty, just like Jesus got down and dirty, entered into our world because he's like, yeah, it's a mess down there. But just because it's in the environment of a mess doesn't mean everything's worthless. There's treasure in the trash. And so Jesus says that this coin, where it is, could make one think it is worthless. But don't let the circumstances lead you to a faulty appraisal. It is absolutely precious to the Lord. And here's the problem. We look at our own circumstances and it's tempting to say, man, my life is a mess. I have got problems. I have marriage problems, parenting problems, financial problems, health problems, relational problems. I got so many problems. My life's a mess. Okay, maybe it is. What does that say about your worth in God's eyes? Absolutely nothing. 
So easy to con- come to conclusions based on everything being a disaster that you're worthless. And it's not so. Yes, you may be kicked to the curb, kicked to the corner in a bunch of debris, but you are treasure to God. And he got down and dirty digging around to find you. You know, going back to my story in Chicago, here, here's what happened. We were, me and my buddy were wandering around the streets of downtown Chicago, and uh, we had some fun, you know, walking around for a while. But later in the morning, I, I said, what if we visited my dad? My father at the time worked downtown Chicago in the Sears Tower. I know I'm not supposed to call it that anymore. It's now the uh, ah, Sears Tower. It will always be for me. And I said, what if we went and visited my father who works in the Sears Tower? My buddy's like, let's do it. Here's a picture. The Sears Tower, the base of it at least, has got two entrances. Uh, There's one there to the right where visitors go in and you can ride an elevator to the observation floor at the very top. But the business people go in that glass atrium there to the left. And I knew that. And so we went in that business entrance to go visit my dad. And imagine this. I mean, all these high-powered men and women in their formal business attire and these two scrappy kids come in with, again, rumpled stained t-shirts and tattered jeans. And right away, a security guard comes over to us and says, boys, get out of here. And he pointed to the door and we were like, okay, okay. I didn't want to get in trouble. We got out to the curb. My friend's like, why didn't you tell him that your dad was here to see your dad? And I'm like, Oh, I was flustered, you know, I didn't want... He's like, let's tell him. So we go walking back in, and this time the security guard is ticked off. And he comes up to, I told you boys to get out of here. And he actually grabbed us by the shirt a bit and started walking us towards the door. And I'm like, sorry, time out. I'm here to see my dad. My dad works here. My dad works here. He's like, what? He's like, my dad works here, and we're here to see him. And I could tell he didn't believe me at all. He's like, oh, yeah? Who's your dad? You know, and I said, his name is Gary Griffin. He's like, oh yeah, what company does he work for? And I said, Griffin, Cubic, Stevens, and Thompson. That was the name of this company my dad co-owned. And the first little hint of concern lit up on his face. And he said, I'm going to make a phone call. Come with me. And he brings us over to this phone and he calls and he says, I got this kid who says that he's Jeff Griffin, the son of Gary Griffin at Griffin Cubic. And all of a sudden he's like, Oh, oh, okay then. All right then, I'll, I'll bring them up. And he hangs up the phone and he says, uh, young sirs, <laughs> young sirs. <laughs> I'm like, yes. And he's like, I've made a big mistake and I need to apologize to you. Uh, please follow me. And now he's escorting us to this fancy elevator to ride up. And I'm like, wow, did that change? And here's the, the connection. I was kicked to the curb. I was told, you're not supposed to be here. You are worthless. You know, the, the message that was conveyed earlier is that you're laughable. But when you call the Father and ask, why don't you speak into this matter? Man, does the story change. Similarly, our circumstances are such where we're kicked to the curb, mistreated by people, told we're a joke. We're too young, too old, too poor, too whatever. Don't listen to him. Call the Father. And so why don't you tell me? My circumstances are giving me one message that I'd really love to gain your perspective on the matter. 
even though your circumstances make you feel like trash, you are, no, you are treasured by God. All right, let's go to the last one, the, the, the parable of the lost son. Just to give you the context, it's a long parable, and I'm just going to have to summarize much of it. There's two boys working for their father who owns the large estate, and this one son is dreaming of the day when he will inherit this estate, or at least half of it, and he grows impatient with his dad's failure to die. And he says the most insensitive thing, Dad, I just want to get out of here! And I'm sick of waiting for you to die. Give me, I know you're not dead, but can we pretend you are? Give me my half of the inheritance I just want out. I mean, can you imagine anything more insulting to a father than that? But this father says, okay, let's pretend I'm dead. Here's half of all I own. And this boy runs off to a distant city and parties big time, wild living, the passage says, squanders all of the father's hard-earned money running with prostitutes and living the exact lifestyle the father is diametrically opposed to. I mean, the insult here is just beyond imagine. But the wild living burns through the money pretty quick. And this young man finds himself eventually penniless, friendless, and desperate. Ends up working at a pig farm, feeding the pigs, and he's so down and out that eating pig food begins to look appealing to him. And in this point of, oh my, my life is a train wreck, this thought comes to mind. Maybe, I mean, obviously my father would never accept me home as a son, but maybe he'd give me a job as a servant. I know what they make and how they live. It's better than what I'm experiencing now. And he's like, it's worth a shot. And so he goes home and he sees the house and he's like, odds are my dad is going to scream at me and tell me to get out and I get it. I'll turn around right away. Let's see how this goes. How does the father feel about me? Maybe one of my favorite verses in scripture, verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This is God in you. Just in case you were wondering, we are all prodigal sons and daughters. And you wonder, how does God feel about spiritually messed up people? Well, Jesus made it pretty clear there. The Father runs to you, sees you, runs to you, embraces you, spins you around and kisses you because he adores you. And what's the point here about the lost son? This kid is a despicable failure. That's the key. Even though you are a spiritual failure, you are loved by God. Even though you eat ice cream in the middle of the day, you are loved by God. Even though you do that thing you said you weren't going to do a thousand times, you're still loved by God. Even though you frustrate yourself endlessly, and others maybe, you are loved by God. The incredible truth of this little drama is that the love of God is so far beyond the love of this world that if we can see it, it'll blow our minds. Do you know what I do? I challenge you to do this. Sometimes when I can't sleep, 
I do this. I bring this parable to mind, and I imagine me, the kid, returning home in the pig slop. Stink, humiliating. It's pretty easy for me to connect with that character. And I find myself saying, oh, Lord, I have such a mess up. How do you see me, Lord? And then I imagine God seeing me from a distance. And I imagine God running. In my mind, I have a pretty vivid imagination. And I imagine God just all grins, bursting eyes, Jeff! and he's running to me and running to me. And I imagine God picking me up and embracing me and kissing me. You're like, that's a little bit of a stretch. That's biblical. It's not a stretch. If you're embarrassed to think of God interacting with you in that way, you're embarrassed to embrace Scripture. That's just the hard, cold facts of what Jesus revealed about the heart of God towards spiritual failures. In fact, uh, it goes on, verse 22. The father says, bring the best robe. You know, this guy just is in tattered, pig slop coated clothing. He looks terrible. Well, this glorious robe that makes him look like a king is wrapped around his shoulders. Bring the best robe, put it on, and put a ring on his finger. This was a signet ring, which symboled full status as son in this family. Again, there would be a stamp, a little encarved part of the ring that they would use to seal documents. It was like the family credit card. You, you were a full part of the son as that ring was, full part of the family as that ring was put on his finger. Get sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. We're going to not just eat. We're going to eat the finest food the world allows. Kill it for let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead, but he is alive again. When uh, they, my new friend at the Sears Tower escorted us to the uh, elevator and brought us up to my dad's floor, uh, he said to my, my buddy and I, you guys got it from here? And we're like, yes, thank you very much for bringing us up. And we came walking in. And I was a bit intimidated because my dad's uh, office was a room about this size. And they're, they're uh, bond traders. And so in those days, it was kind of an open outcry where there are desks all kind of like this. You know, people all over the place looking towards the front where they... And so it was one big room with a lot of people. And it just seemed like all of a sudden all the eyes were on these two kids who came wandering in on the corner. You know, who are the, the two that don't belong? And I spotted my dad on the other side of the room. He was on an important phone call. But he looked up and he saw me and he lit up and hung up that phone. And before I knew it, he was charging down that aisle. I didn't even have to move. Right for me. Lit up wrapped his arms around both me and my friend. So you guys made my day, you know. And we were just glowing in the love of the Father. Though many thought we didn't belong, he wanted us. You know what my dad said? You boys hungry? Can I take you to lunch? Yeah, you bet you can. You know, we left thinking, I was thinking at least we were going to McDonald's, which was great. My dad says, you know what? I'm going to give you boys a treat. He goes, you ever been to the Metropolitan Club? Here's a picture of it. On the top of the Sears Tower is a private club that is absolutely the best restaurant I've ever been at. And my dad brings us up to this private club, you know, and we're kind of like eyes bugging out of our head. And this guy in a, a tuxedo comes 
Mr. Griffin, are you here for lunch? Yes, there are three of us, my dad says. I go, Dad, I don't think we're dressed appropriately. And my dad's like, you know what, you got a point. They do require a sport coat to dine in this place. And so my dad says to the tuxedoed guy, Charlie, can you fix the boys up with some sport coats? Let me see what I can do, Mr. Griffin. And he goes into this coat room and he comes back out with these sport coats. Way too big, you know, our shoulders were like this. But I never felt so powerful as that big old coat was wrapped, just like the robe wrapped around the sun. I was like, yeah, look at me, you know. Probably laughable, but in my eyes, I looked fantastic. And we went and we dined on the finest grilled cheese you have ever tasted. Is there a kitty menu here? Yeah. I don't remember what we ate, but it was amazing. Friends, the challenge we have is that you can build a real strong case. We are trash. I mean, we are living in a broken world where our circumstances are a mess. We're just a face in the crowd. We're spiritual failures in more ways we want than we want to admit. But the the challenge is, is to incorporate the biblical perspective so thoroughly that you don't make a mistake and conclude that you are completely worthless. It's so important that we speak to the only one who can speak with authority as to who we really are, and that's God, our Creator and Redeemer. And the great news of Luke 15 as though you might be just a face in the crowd. Let's go to the next slide. Though you may just be a face in the crowd, you are known to God. The details of your life are known and celebrated by Him. That's the message of the lost sheep. And though your circumstances may make you feel like trash, what does the coin tell us? You are treasured by the Father. And then lastly, even though you're a spiritual failure, you are loved by God. You know, this final song we're going to sing is called, Who You Say I Am. Do you see how important that message is? It's so easy to be uh, believing all the messages, bombarding our mind, whether they be from the evil one or from the world or even from us. It's so easy to have a view of yourself that is repulsive based on this barrage of input. But the only opinion that matters is who the maker, king, and redeemer, what he says. And the scriptures are pretty clear on that. We are absolutely adored and treasured by him. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, help us because we are a people who get so low. I know I'm not alone these reasons and these evidences for our disgustingly low value. It's a pretty compelling case. But God, your grace cuts through it all. And we just ask that you would increasingly remind us of the lessons of this great chapter in Luke and that we would see ourselves little by little, not with any cocky arrogance because it's all grace, but we would see ourselves as you see us, that we would believe we are who you say we are. Would you please, even this day or this week when we are attacked by the evil one and brought down, 
Remind us of this truth. Let us look at ourselves, not in the mirror, but through your eyes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.